It is finals week for me. I am in a, a course of study through Nazarene, uh, Northwest Nazarene University. And um, this is a course in spiritual formation. And the very first class I've had to take is intro to spiritual formation. And I'm now beginning to understand all the moaning and groaning I've heard from Riddle Court and North Pole over the last year and a half. Because as I've watched Laura struggle through her training and her schooling, I've thought, man, I don't ever want to go back to school. And then God called me to go back to school, and I've started, and I'm in finals week, and it's, it's interesting. Not overwhelming, but it's interesting. And one of the things that I've had to do this week, and I told my wife, I said, this one is just, ugh. I, I shouldn't be saying this because I'm recording the sermon, but oh well, <laughs> life goes on. It's the truth. I'm not speaking anything but the truth. Um, and I'm trying to do it in love. But anyway, anyway um, there were a number of texts that we had to read for this course. And this last text, which I won't give you the name of it at least, so you won't know the author, um, is just a sleeper. <laughs> All of the rest of them have been powerful and moving and I just turned pages and couldn't keep, just, oh, i got to do this. This last one, Normally, I can read a 170 to 200-page book in you know, three, four hours, normally. I'm already at six hours on this one, and I'm only at 180, and I still have another 40 pages to go, uh, 40 or 50 pages, and I'm just I'm dying because I've got to have the paper done by 10 o'clock tonight. So you know what I'm going to do, do this afternoon. Um, but anyway... There, I told my wife as, we were, as this week has been progressing and I've been struggling through this text, there are gems in here. You know, it's like you mine through the garbage pit and you find, oh, look, a really cool thing. And you set it aside and you mine through the garbage pit again and you find some more. So there's been these little gems that I found. And one of the things that I found was um, an interesting little thing I'd never heard of before. And he was, the, the author was relating how his daughter had shared with him something that she found on the internet and he just was... Uh, amazed, and I thought, oh, it's on the internet, I'll see if I can find it. Well, I couldn't find what he was talking about exactly, but I found the original. And so I wanted to share with you what I found, because it is amazing. It's called The Powers of Ten. The Powers of Ten. It is a video, actually it is a film, a film that was created back in, I believe, the late 1960s or early 70s. Um, it is based on the idea that if you pull away from, a, from an object in tens, it'll show how far out, how quickly, how far out in the universe we go. And then it brings you back down to this object and then it goes inward by tens to the smallest known object on Earth. And that's called a quark, which is this tiny, tiny little thing within the nucleus of a cell. Now, obviously, they don't have the ability in the film to actually show us a real quark. It's all animation. But, but the idea that they're presenting here is looking at a human being and then pulling away as far as the known universe has gone. Now, obviously, that was back in the late 60s, early 70s, so it may be that we know farther out now. But, but as far as the known universe was back then, and then going all the way down to the smallest known unit in all of creation. And it's just fascinating. It only lasts a number of minutes, so I'd like you to watch it with me. If you want to, if you want to, it's fine with me. 
Uh-uh. Nope. Sorry, I'm not, I, I don't want, I, I specifically want these kids, to, the, the teenagers to hear. So if you want to take the kids out, that's okay. But the teenagers are staying. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, I, I just, I feel strongly about it. The Lord told me to preach this sermon and he told me that there are people here who need to hear it. So um, you deal with that. Okay, powers of 10. Wayne, I missed it. I lost it somehow by playing. Okay, here we go. Powers of 10.
Our last 10 seconds left took us 10 light years further. The next will be 100. Our perspective changes so much in each step now that even the background stars will appear to converge. At last, we pass the bright star objects, and some stars are different. Normal but quite unfamiliar stars and clouds of gas surround us as we traverse the Milky Way galaxy. That's the limit of our vision of the universe. Four electrons 
to make up the outer shell of the garden itself. They appear in quantum motion as a swarm of shimmering points. At 10 to the minus 10 meters, one ice cream, we find ourselves right among those outer electrons. Now we come upon the two inner electrons held in a tighter swarm. As we draw toward the atoms attracting center, we enter upon the vast inner space. At last, the carbon nucleus. So massive and so small, this carbon nucleus is made up of six protons and six neutrons. We are in the domain of universal modules. There are protons and neutrons in every nucleus, electrons in every atom, atoms bonded to every molecule out to the farthest galaxy. As a single proton fills our sea, we reach the edge of present understanding. Are these some quarks in intense interaction? Our journey has taken us to 40 powers of 10. If now the field is one unit, then when we saw many clusters of galaxies together, it was 10 to the 40, or 1 and 40 zeros. Kind of makes you think. And we think we're so big. But from a quark, the tiniest known thing, all the way out to the outer reaches of our, of our universe. As far, and, and they said, as far as we can see. Now, even to this day, it may even be farther because we've improved technology. But we know from what we understand from the scriptures that God is omnipresent, which means... He's everywhere at once. And he's aware of everything because he's omniscient, which means he knows everything. So whether or not there's a star that's about to die out in the farthest reaches of the universe, or there's a problem in the nucleus of the cell of your body, and anything in between, he's involved. He knows. He has the power to deal with it. Now, having said all of that, let's look at the story that I shared with the kids this morning. The prodigal father. That's what I've titled my sermon. The prodigal father, based on Luke chapter 11. And the reason, excuse me, I've been doing this all week long. Luke 15, verse 11. Luke 15, verse 11. We don't have to read it. You just heard me this morning say it to the kids. This is the story of the father who has two sons and the youngest son decides that he no longer wants to be part of the family. He wants to trek out on his own. And he says to his father, I want my share of the estate. This is a story that Jesus told. We need to understand that. This wasn't Jesus relating history. This was a story that Jesus told to identify a certain uh, point that he was trying to make. But let's move on in this. The prodigal, what does that word mean? Um, looking it up in the dictionary, and this, you look at the bottom, you see it says dictionary.com. Um, the word prodigal means wastefully or recklessly extravagant. That's where we get the idea of the prodigal son. He took his inheritance and wastefully and recklessly, extravagantly threw it out 
on parties. How do we know this? Because the elder son at the end of the story says to his father, he went out there and blew all of your money on prostitutes. And that was the story Jesus was making was that this young kid took something very valuable, something that was incredibly, I mean, an incredible gift to him and just blew it, just wasted it. But as I was going through this with our professor and the students in my class, because we looked at this parable uh, two weeks ago, the, the professor said to me in one of the replies, he said, but the father, isn't he also a prodigal? And I was like, what? And I wrote back, I said, no, prodigal's bad. And he said, look it up. So I did. There are more than one definition to the word prodigal. Whoops, sorry. Giving or yielding profusely, being lavish in your giving is also prodigal. Let's look at verse 22 through 24 of chapter 15 of Luke. It says, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, at the beginning of this story, what did the kid do? He said, Father, I demand that you give me my share of the estate. So think about this. In order for the father to give his youngest son his share, the father had to look at his estate as if he was already dead and then divide it up appropriately. Now, we in our Western culture would think 50-50. That's not how they did it in the East. The eldest son had a responsibility to care for his parents in their elder years. And so the way the Eastern mindset is, is that there is a division of the estate by the number of siblings plus one. And the eldest child gets two shares so that he'll have enough to provide for the family, I mean, for the elder uh, parents. So what happened was, Dad, in response to this son's asking for his share, divides the whole estate into thirds and gives the youngest son his portion, leaving two-thirds for the elder son. And the elder son has a responsibility then to provide for the parent in his final years. So what is this old guy doing giving away his oldest son's property? Because that's what was happening. Bring out the best that we have and put it on this son of mine who was lost to me but is now found. Can you imagine now why the elder son would stand in the field and go, I ain't going in there. What was his is being taken from him. The best of what he had to give to that. That is just flat out wrong and I'm not going to have any part of it. But think, the father was indeed a prodigal in the sense that he was being lavish 
in his giving. This kid had, dis, had disrespected him, had disrespected the family, had disrespected their traditions. Not only that, he blew everything in raucous, careless, selfish living and then has the nerve to come back and ask to be part of this household again. But that's not the response that he got. The response that he got was, you're home, throw a party. It's amazing. How in the world could he have that mindset? But as I said, Jesus wasn't relating a true story. He was telling a parable. And a parable is a story that's told to, to, to make a point. And the point Jesus was making is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. So let's turn there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Jesus was trying to help the Jewish people understand that God himself is prodigal in his actions toward us. God himself lavishly, wastefully, extravagantly gives away his love to us even when we have no right to it. This father in the story also represents God in this way. He is a father who pays attention. He is a father who is ever watching. He is a father. It's not told to us in the story, but if you look at verse 20 of, first of, of Luke chapter 15, it says... While the young son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran to him, throwing his arms around him and kissing him. And if you read in the original language, if you read the commentators, they will tell you that this watching for the son, this seeing him afar off was as a result of a perpetual watching. The idea is, is that the father spent the rest of his days while the son was away from him, standing on the front porch of the house, ever watching the horizon, hoping that someday his son would return. So there's this mindset of ever watchfulness, always looking, always hoping, waiting for that moment when he can lavish his love on the undeserving wretch. If you look in Luke chapter 12, just a couple pages back, again, Jesus is talking. Chapter 12, verse 7, he says, Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God, who can see the farthest reaches of the known universe... God, who can see way, way, way down deep into the microscopic parts of us. God, who is ever watchful, knows you so well. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows the days that were appointed for you. How do I know that? Well, if you look, well, I guess I'm getting myself ahead. 
Yeah, here it is. Psalm 139. If you'll turn to Psalm 139, which is what we read earlier this morning, verses 1 through 4. David wrote, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, Lord. You see, Jesus is trying to help the Jewish people and us who have this story understand that this omnipotent, almighty, all-knowing, all-present God is a father to us who wants to lavish his love on us who wants to who who continually watches out for us who knows us intimately so intimately that even the days that were ordained for us were already written down in a book long before our bodies were even formed in our mother's wombs this is all the word of god he is the father who pays attention to us in addition to that he is the father who celebrates if you look Again, Luke chapter 15, we just read it, verse 32. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There wasn't a choice in the matter. It is in my very nature to celebrate when something like this occurs. Don't you understand? Look at Luke chapter 15, verse 7. Another parable making the same point. Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now think about that. God in his nature celebrates when a sinner comes. But God has structured the life of heaven that when one sinner comes to know the Lord, all of heaven stops what they're doing and begins to party. Why? Because God told them to. And they are partying more over that one sinner coming to faith than all of us sitting in this room times two who are faithfully serving God on a continual basis. I seem right. Elder children, elder brothers and sisters standing in the field. We won't go there yet. We're talking about celebration. Luke chapter 15, the next story in this trilogy, verse 10. Jesus talking about the woman who lost the coin. She finds the coin and she says, uh, and she says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. And Jesus said, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, in the Jewish culture, when a person makes testimony, it's significant. When three people make testimony of the same thing, it's worth listening to. Jesus, three times in a row, Different scenario, different story. He talked about lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. But three times he said, when that which is lost is found, there is a cause for rejoicing. All of heaven rejoices. The angels of heaven rejoice. I had no choice but to rejoice. Jesus was saying something very significant. 
If you know nothing else about God, know that He loves you desperately. And He wants to lavishly pour out that love on you. Know that He is watching over you daily. And especially those that are lost. If you have someone in your life that you're praying for, God loves them much more than you could ever love them. And God is waiting for that moment when He can begin the party. And as soon as it happens, all of heaven will break loose. Think about that. But celebration in our humanity, not not in heaven, because it's always real in heaven, but celebration in our humanity can be false. And I want to talk about that for just a moment. One of the things that we did this week, or this two weeks ago now, we did a, 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 a scriptural practice called Lexio Divina, and it was interesting to do it online. Um, and what the professor had us do was he had us follow a PowerPoint presentation that he had prepared, and we only got a part of it each day. So we saw the first picture the first day, the second day we saw the first picture and the second picture, third day we saw the first, the second, and the third, the fourth day we saw the first, the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth picture and all of the scripture that went with it. But it was all based on the prodigal son, the, the, the Luke, 11, Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. And I asked if I had permission, if I could show it in church. Number one, I couldn't show it in church because of the content. Um, it, it requires a mature audience, so I couldn't have children present. Number two, it's a copyrighted thing, and I'm not allowed to show it. But I will describe, quite, I mean, basically what it was. Imagine there's a room in a home kind of sparse, just a table, lamp, little bowl of flowers, an older man sitting in a chair reading a newspaper. Behind the man, out of his sight, is standing a younger man, stark naked, bent over in shame. The next frame, the younger man has stepped just slightly closer to the older man, but is really still in shame. The next picture, the older man has turned and seen the young man standing behind him and now the young man is like this and the older man is like this. The next picture, the older man is taking off his shirt. And the last picture, excuse me, the next picture, the younger man is wearing the shirt and the older man is taking off his trousers. And the final picture, the young man is fully dressed in the older man's clothes and the older man stands stark naked and they're embracing. Think about what that's saying. When there's a celebration, it comes at great cost. When you celebrate, You need to dance like no one is watching. You need to let go completely. You need to be able to, with abandon, just celebrate. Not worrying about who's watching or what they might think or what other stuff is going on. And the only way you can truly celebrate a relationship that is healed is if indeed it's healing. Because otherwise, 
It's false. Otherwise, you're just simply going through the motions of celebration. You might be saying the words and smiling the smile and blowing up the balloons and throwing the confetti. But deep inside, there really isn't true celebration going on because there isn't true relationship yet. I want to show you some, some of the things that I went through. And I, know, I apologize for the amount of words, but it was the only way that I could adequately share with you without having a computer in front of me because this was all online. Henri Nguyen, who was a, 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 Roman, a Roman Catholic priest, lived back in the 1900s, just died in the, in the latter part of the 1900s. We had to read one of his books on the prodigal, the return of the prodigal. And he said, as father, talking about God, the only authority he claims for himself is the authority of compassion. That authority comes from letting the sins of his children pierce his heart. There is no lust, greed, anger, resentment, jealousy, or vengeance in his lost children that has not caused immense grief to his heart. The grief is so deep because the heart is so pure. From the deep inner place where love embraces all human grief, the father reaches out to his children. The touch of his hands radiating inner life seeks only to heal. And then I had to respond to that. And this was my response. Today, as I watched these videos, these, these pictures, the single word response from the text was celebrate. I saw on the slides the work that needed to be accomplished between the father and the prodigal son before the celebration could start. Without this work, the celebration would be false, meaningless. The father, upon recognizing the state of his son, immediately took off and gave his shirt to his son. But even so, the shirt wasn't enough to cover the son's nakedness, his shame. So the father had to make the decision to completely strip, take on the son's shame. Think about that. The very beginning of the Bible, why did Adam and Eve hide? Why did they cover themselves with leaves? Because of shame. God took on the shame of his children. I saw this evidence by the contemplation displayed by the father as he was removing his trousers. His other hand was at his mouth, indicating that he was thinking about his action. By giving all of his clothing, the father covers his son's nakedness or shame, but to do so, he had to take it on himself. Now he is stark naked for all to see. This is a powerful image representing the atonement. The son's shame has been removed. The healing has taken place, but at great cost to the father. Now the celebration can begin. That posting happened on Good Friday. Can you imagine what God was doing in our lives, the students, as we were processing all of this and the thought of what God gave up in order to have right relationship with us and the fact that he rejoices and can you understand the pain and deep grief that God's heart feels when someone rejects him because of all that he had to give in order to bring healing to bring a ability for relationship it's just a powerful 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 thought to me there's a gospel song. I cry almost every time I hear it. 
He chose me. He chose me out of all he could have used. He chose me. He chose me out of all he could have used. He had the entire universe available to him. And he looked down onto this tiny little speck. And he looked deep down until he saw where you were standing. And he called your name. And he held out his hand. And he said, won't you join me? I will give everything to make that happen. No cost is too great. And I won't demand anything of you, just your life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. I don't want to read these. Write them down if you need to. These are the supporting verses for this idea of being chosen. You can reflect on those later. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Peter 2, 9. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 5. He chose me. There's a contemporary Christian song, He Knows My Name. I would like for us to just spend some time quietly in this setting, listening to that, looking at the images that are there, and allowing God's Holy Spirit to minister to your heart. At the end, the last slide has the benediction. When you're done listening to the Spirit of God, you're free to leave. If you need, the altars are open and you're welcome to pray. Uh, But I would ask that as you leave, that you be quiet. And I would ask that the sanctuary doors be shut so that those who need to stay back and pray and, and do work with God could have the time to do that. But think about this. He knows you. He chose you. He delights in you. He celebrates. He sings songs over you. He knows your name.